Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. This morning at a steakhouse in New York City. I had uh, read this book called Red Moon Rising and had doubled over weeping a number of times connecting the dots of how some Brit named Pete was a young man receiving a vision of a sweeping prayer movement and that at that exact same time I was a 13-year-old kid receiving a nearly identical vision leading to a journey with Jesus, an adventure that I'm still very much on. And through a series of very unlikely connections, here I am sitting in a booth in a New York City steakhouse across from that very Brit named Pete. I'm preparing to start the first of what would become many prayer rooms, and I'm gathering advice from the bewildered founder of the movement himself. And as I cut into the hunk of meat they had just laid before me, I was startled and enlivened by the question, could God really have been writing the same story in me across the world at the same time? From a steakhouse in New York to a hot tub in the Rockies. It was about 10 years later that I was somewhere in the Rocky Mountains for a series of meetings with a group of leaders, including Pete, who had now grown into a mentor and a friend. We'd spent countless hours on Zoom together, me peppering him with questions, this time less about prayer rooms and more about life, about family and fatherhood and discipleship to Jesus. And we traveled together more than once, gotten to know each other's families, seen the best and probably some of the worst in each other. And there we are in the Rockies as the founder of the global prayer movement was climbing into a hot tub in a wardrobe that could only be appropriately described as creative <laughs> since... He had forgotten his bathing suit. (laughs) He was making a jab at my expense, laughing harder at his own jokes than anyone else within earshot. And in this moment, I was deeply comforted by the realization, God really can use anyone. (laughs) A New York City steakhouse, a Rocky Mountain hot tub, and finally a Portland living room. My third son, Amos, was diagnosed with a heart condition seven months out from the delivery date. It wasn't just any heart condition, the most severe that uh, any child can survive. The doctor had instructed us to prepare for the very worst, that loss of life was probable within just a few days after birth. Kirsten, my wife, was composed throughout that appointment and then doubled over weeping like I've never heard anyone weep as soon as the hospital elevator doors closed and we were alone. I texted Pete the following day to share the news, still very much in the shock of the gut punch. He and Sammy happened to be in the U.S. at the time, albeit the other side of the country, and they flew for a one-night stay in Portland the very next day to be with us in our living room to pray. And in that moment, there is no one else that I would have rather been with, because if you know anything about their own story, you know that they can empathize with a sudden and debilitating medical diagnosis. Nine months later, and we've got a photo of this, Pete met Amos for the very first time, healthy and happy. Now, this is Pentecost Sunday. 
It's a day when the church will celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence and power of God. And tomorrow, many of us will gather for wildfires, contending for the next great awakening. And that, what is captured in that photo, the sense of friendship and community that was present at a New York City steakhouse and a Rocky Mountain hot tub and in a Portland living room, that is the backbone of every great awakening. So I want to speak to you today from Acts chapter 2. And I'd love if you would just stand with me as I read the word of the Lord. I want to read us Acts 2 verses 1 through 21. And this is going to be the grounding text that we work out of for the remainder of our time together. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own native language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowds. Fellow Jews and all of you living in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the, great and com before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So I want you to see what happened among those ordinary people in that ordinary place in a way that would connect the dots between them and ordinary people in an ordinary place like us here today. And so I want to look back on this event that goes by the title of Pentecost the same way that you look back at any event through asking these two very simple questions. What happened and what does it mean? So first, what happened? Well, let's start at the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the Bible's famous opening line. And the culminating moment of God's creation comes just a ways down the page. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So human beings are set apart in God's creation as his image bearers. Turn the page to Genesis 3 and the whole story is unraveled by the fall. The divine image in people distorted by sin. And sin is a condition with both vertical and horizontal consequences. 
Right, sin has vertical consequences between me and God, symbolized in Adam and Eve hiding from God in the brush. But sin also has horizontal consequences between me and you, symbolized by Adam and Eve hiding from each other behind fig leaves. The condition then deepens and spreads until in Genesis 11, when humanity attempts to construct a society not built on God's image, but built on self-sufficiency and individualism through the Tower of Babel. We no longer have any need from God. There's a vertical breach. Nor do we have need for one another, a horizontal breach, as the consequences of sin matured over time to their full destructive potential. So the Lord scattered them over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. Vertical and horizontal consequences, that's important. Hang on to that. In response, God then grows them into a nation, Israel, that is set apart by a different story and a different way of relating both to God and to each other. God relates to Israel differently than any other people. He guides them in a, a visible cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. He speaks to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And God instructs Israel to relate to each other in a different way than is present in any other nation. That's what the Ten Commandments and later the whole of the law was all about. A society recovering the image of God put into us at first. It is a long, slow play to repair the virtue vertical, and horizontal consequences of sin. And that brings us to Pentecost. Pentecost uh, was originally one of three Jewish pilgrimage festivals that was commanded by God in the law given to Moses that would set Israel aside as a redeemed society. All the Jewish people would then travel from every corner of the Roman Empire to Jerusalem where everyone from every different tribe and region would descend on one city for one week-long massive party. It was like trying to find a pub in London to watch an England World Cup match. Super fun, pure chaos. Now, what were they celebrating? Well, Pentecost is the Greek translation of the Jewish word Shavuot, which means the Feast of First Fruits. So before the day of Pentecost was the, about the birth of the Christian church, it was about the giving of the Hebrew law, when God met with Moses on Mount Sinai, giving him the Ten Commandments. And there was an ancient rabbinical myth that Moses then walked down from that mountain carrying these stone tablets, and when he first spoke what was written on the tablets, it was heard in 70 languages all at the same time. The 70 languages believed to exist on the globe at that time. In fact, one rabbinical text says, the law was given with a single sound, yet all received it in their own languages. So based on Exodus 19, the rabbis then dated Pentecost, the gift of the law, 50 days after Passover. Again, those are important details. Hang on to those. All of that meaning that Pentecost was a celebration that is good, but incomplete. There's a limited amount of intimacy that you can have with words chiseled onto stone tablets, right? The, the issue with the law is that it's outside of us. It can be understood, but not related to. But later in the story, there is this promise, Jeremiah 31. This is the covenant that I will make with my people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So Pentecost was an ancient celebration awaiting a crescendo. It was a phenomenal first act awaiting a finishing second. 
And that brings us to Jesus. On the other side of the cross in the empty tomb, Jesus appears again to his disciples saying, go to Jerusalem and wait. More specifically, in Luke 24, he says, I'm going to send you what my father promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Which makes me ask, what's Jesus waiting on? I mean, what's the delay? Why not just give the gift that you've planned to give right now? What's he waiting on? Well, he spoke this at Passover. He's waiting 50 days, 50 days after Passover for the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover for the ancient festival awaiting a crescendo for the first act awaiting a second. Jesus is waiting on Pentecost for the gift of the Holy Spirit when everyone will gather into the city for that one great celebration. It is the perfect moment to complete the story that's awaiting an ending. So the stage is set. The entire nation's packed into that one city. People from every nation, tribe, language, and class, every corner of society is packing the city streets. If you wanted to say something that would get all the way to the ends of the earth, you could not pick a better day than this one. Tongues of fire then descend in that little upper room, and Peter starts breaking down all the things that Jesus said and did, the meaning of his death, the invitation of his resurrection. But everyone hears what Peter's saying in their own native language. Pentecost tradition, Moses says the law, and it's heard everyone's language all at once. Uh, the day of Pentecost, every language is heard at once, a God redeeming the whole of the world. Old and young, men and women, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and where's the message written? Well, it's not on tablets of stone this time, but on human hearts. Because this gift is of an indwelling spirit. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. In other words, this is not a law to be memorized. It's a spirit to be filled with. The life of God plunging into your very life. As it says in 2 Corinthians 3, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. And the rest of the biblical story is more or less just a response to the gift of that spirit. It's the power of God filling ordinary flawed people just like us. You see, what I'm trying to show you is that the Holy Spirit is the application of all of Jesus' teaching. It is the reverse of the curse that infected the whole world and infected me and you. It is to be lavished in the Father's love in the most personal way. But of course, there is the unintended consequence. I mean, every great offer comes with some unintended consequence, right? Like for instance, uh, my iPhone lets me store contacts, so I can put everyone's phone number in this thing. I don't have to remember them anymore. The unintended consequence is that I can't dial my mother on someone else's phone. I mean, how many of you could? In fact, I hope the battery holds up on this thing because I can't navigate directions anywhere, find where to get a cup of coffee, or even pay for that cup of coffee if the battery dies. And the iPhone has made so many things accessible to me that never were before, but the unintended consequence is that I'm entirely helpful without, un, or I'm entirely helpless without it. The unintended consequence of our unity with God is that God insists on unity with one another. 
Jesus' 12 closest disciples relationally bridged every socioeconomic, ideological, and political dividing line in their society. There were blue-collar workers, tax collectors, and zealots all right there in his inner circle together. And that's beautiful to reflect back on today from a safe distance. But if you were in that original group of 12, there's real tension to work through in those relationships. And on the day of Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to make this wildly diverse group of people one. The most wildly diverse group of people you can imagine. Diverse cultures, customs, and languages. Various socioeconomic backgrounds, tastes, and vices. Different families, personalities, and temperaments. All of them, the Holy Spirit given to make them one, even as the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. Again, compelling idea to look back on from a safe distance but also one that was terribly uncomfortable and produced a lot of tension to work out in a day-in, day-out context. Look, if you're looking for a solitary, just me, my journal, and an ambient Icelandic playlist and my earbuds version of spirituality, you will not find it with Jesus. A solo spiritual journey is a modern invention. Many very legitimate grievances have and will be levied against the church of our time. But even Jesus himself, who was the harshest of critics against the temple's uh, corruption of his own time, also was still a willing participant in temple life. He still immersed himself in temple relationships. He still went to the temple for prayer. He still added his voice to the temple's teachings. What the life of Jesus unmistakably tells us is this. There is no version of being with Jesus that does not stick me with others as well. And with others that I didn't handpick, probably a few others that I would dismiss from the group if it was up to me. And it can be easy. When we look back on the spectacle of Pentecost to take in the fiery tongues and the indoor winds and the miracles that spill from this day into the pages of the New Testament, it can be easy to get caught up in the supernatural power of Pentecost. And don't misunderstand me, that is very much a part of it. But I also wonder if the subtle miracle might be the one for us to pay closer attention to today. Not the spectacle of the vertical reconciliation to God through the Holy Spirit represented through signs and wonders. But the slow, subtle, profound gift of our horizontal reconciliation to one another by the power of that very same Spirit. Acts 2 Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? You see, Babel was the tragic story of individualism, which was depicted in different languages. Pentecost is the redemptive story of community that is depicted in one language. Pentecost is the anti-Babel. It is the reverse of the curse that drives us apart from one another. And as the day of Pentecost gets worked out in the church, we eventually reach 1 Corinthians 14, a manifesto on the exercise of the power of the Spirit in community. A chapter in which, in between all the talk of signs and wonders and the miraculous, includes the oft-overlooked command, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. You see, in the early church, they never imitated the miracles of Jesus without equally imitating the love of Jesus. They moved toward pain, toward hurt, toward annoyances and grievances, toward the needs that existed within one another. 
They learned to forgive and to ask for forgiveness. They saw the worst in each other and they kept on choosing each other. A noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. That's what scripture calls power apart from love. You see, in the biblical story, power always serves love. Never the other way around. So if you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, if you long to know Pentecost signs and wonders here today for supernatural healing and for the deepest kind of inner healing, for ground-shaking words of prophecy and the still small whisper of the Spirit, for fiery intercession and for the, the social reformer on kingdom values that spills forth from it, if you're eager for that, then channel all of your energy into loving those in this room that are hardest for you to love who are most uninspiring, unrewarding, and uncomfortable for you to love. Do you want the power of the Spirit? Then listen to each other. Be patient with one another. Invite someone else in. Simply, humbly, intentionally love, because power flows through love. Are you eager for more of the Spirit? Then make it your ambition to offer the slow, subtle gift of love to one another. The spectacle of Pentecost came in fiery tongues and rushing winds, but the sustaining power of Pentecost came in a people humbly and stubbornly loving one another. And so if it's the power of Pentecost we're after, we would do well to look to one another at our right and left just as often as we look up to the heavens. The gift of the Holy Spirit really does mean signs, wonders, and miracles. And the greatest miracle of all just might be living in a community of love over the long haul. So that's what happened. What does it mean? Well, the spectacle, as powerful as it is, is not what actually unwound the watching world. It was the community left behind by the spectacle that did that. The day of Pentecost was loud and public, but then Pentecost kept on going much more quietly in the humble communities of all those who responded to the words that Peter spoke. Pentecost Sunday is not an invitation for us to reenact a spectacle once a year. It's an invitation for us to become a living picture of the sort of community that the spectacle left behind. So I want to get really, really practical and offer just a few core practices for becoming a Pentecost community, trusting that the Spirit will speak to you through them, and the fruit of this Pentecost Sunday might not be a spectacle in the midst of this Sunday, but might be a Pentecost community left behind by the spectacle we're looking back on. So three practices for becoming a Pentecost community. Friendship, stability, and reconciliation. We'll take those one at a time. First, friendship. In Sebastian Younger's tiny little book, Tribe, which is absolutely fascinating, he makes the case that uh, we live in the, the first society in history that is producing individuals who are surrounded but not with. A person living in a modern city or suburb can, for the first time in history, go through an entire day or an entire life mostly encountering complete strangers. They can be surrounded by others and yet feel deeply, dangerously alone. And in his book, he goes on to make the case that the psychological evidence that this is bad for us is overwhelming. Genesis 1 has a rhythmic cadence. It was written for an oral culture more than a literary culture. And so creation unfolds like this. God uh, creates, sees, calls it good. Creates, sees, 
calls it good. Creates, sees, calls it good. Until like a record scratch, creates, sees, not good. When is the first time in scripture anything is called not good? It's not sin. It is not good that man should be alone. You see, in the biblical story, it wasn't when Adam and Eve plucked that forbidden fruit. It was before that. The biblical picture of paradise, of heaven on earth, is human flourishing in community, not in isolation. Adam had meaningful work. He had provision for his every need. He had a perfect relationship with God, but Adam did not have a companion, a friend. The first problem on the pages of Scripture is not sin, it's loneliness. Likewise, Dr. Vivek Murthy wrote in the Harvard Business Review, During my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, but loneliness. The Genesis portrait of God, it, it stood out to all the comparable creation stories in the ancient Near Eastern world in so many ways. But one of the most obvious ones is this. Every other conception of a creator imagined a solitary God. And then along comes the biblical story, which presents a triune God, a God in community. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The startling claim of Christianity, which stretches all the way back to the early church, is not simply that God is friendly. It's that God is friendship. And Jesus is carefully chosen uh, words at his final meal to his disciples before his crucifixion include... I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. A statement that he followed with a prayer that we, meaning you and I, might become as tight-knit in friendship as he is with the father and the spirit. I recently came across this uh, modern definition of friendship, which I found startlingly accurate. Adult friendship is two people saying, I haven't seen you in forever. We should hang out more over and over again until one of you dies. <laughs> Compare that to the wisdom of C.S. Lewis, who wrote, friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly, to me, it is the chief happiness of life. If I had to give one piece of advice to a young man about a place to live, I think I should say sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near your friends. When I was 29 years old, uh, our first child, Hank, was born. And after bringing him home from the hospital, Kirsten went into what was clinically diagnosed as the very worst of postpartum depression. So I can remember in those early days leaning my head against our apartment door when I would come home each evening to listen for the sobbing that was inside just so I would know what I was walking into. And then I left at 9 a.m. the next morning. My son had just come alive. My wife was struggling to stay alive, and I was escaping into writing sermons. Weeping together narratives of healing and redemption while ignoring the needs for healing and invitations to redemption that were under my own roof. I preferred the world where I could pretend to be the author rather than the one where I was nothing more than a helpless cast member. And then five years later, at 34, I moved across the country to Portland, Oregon. 
And I became the pastor at a different church, and I had the opportunity to start over to rewrite habits and family norms and relational expectations. And I took a two-month sabbatical between Brooklyn and Portland, and it was the best two months of my life. And when we got to Portland, we had a plan. Kirsten and I had made a plan for what I would prioritize and what she would, what I would sacrifice and what she would, the, the family life and the community that we wanted to live in and what it would look like. And then something happened. She got unexpectedly pregnant and work took off faster than I ever imagined. I was the pastor of a thriving church. I was the national director of a prayer movement. And I had a new book coming out all within the year. And thankfully, I'd at least partially learned my lesson. I mean, I made sure that I was there for Kirsten and Amos at the hospital over those unthinkably difficult 30 days. And I made sure I was there for my boys as I tried to provide some stability for those two in the midst of it all. And then as soon as I could be, I was back at full speed until Tim a very close friend that I'd made through that new church community sat down with me one Sunday evening over dinner and he said, hey, Tyler, I love you. And I've heard you tell me about the kind of life that you want to live and the kind of husband you want to be and the kind of father you want to be. And I'm concerned as I watch you that you've constructed your life in a way that is not in line with what you most want. And so I just want to reflect that back to you. I was right where I started five years ago, running to make, into the make-believe world where I was the author, not the one that I was really living in, where I was nothing more than a helpless cast member. I was in exactly the same place, only this time I had a friend, a friend willing to really love me, a friend willing to come and find me in that disguise that I can never keep from putting on again and again and again, and a friend who said, hey, take that off. Come alive. Be loved. And in the pantheon of human relationships, that's a role that it seems to me at least is best suited for friendship. Not for spouses or children or acquaintances or colleagues, but friends. Let me tell you something that you know but tend to forget. Life is about relationship. When the clock is running out on your numbered days, you will not be lying on your deathbed thinking proudly or shamefully about your resume or your bank account. You will not be thinking about your to-do list and what you did or did not get done. You will not be thinking about what is stressing you this morning. People, that's what you'll be thinking about. The people that you got to spend your numbered days with and how you gave yourself to them and how you didn't and how you prioritized them and how you failed to and what you sacrificed to know them in the deepest way, or what you held on to that kept you from it. Here is the power of Pentecost, is that the church became an academy of friendship, like a beaming light of human relationship at its best to the watching world. So there's friendship. And then there's stability. One of the more obvious ways that the modern church experience is distinct from that first Pentecost community is this— options. We have options. If you don't particularly enjoy this church, or if I say something to offend you as the sermon continues to unfold, no worries. There's plenty of other options for you. There's tons of other churches that would be really happy to receive you next Sunday. And uh, not to mention the fact that we've got electronic availability of church content everywhere. 
right? You can piece together a few friends from here in Guilford with uh, the podcast of your favorite preacher and Maverick City's new worship album. There you've got it, a church of your own making, just your preferences. We've got options, and the earliest believers didn't. And there's a whole lot good about that. But alongside all that good, there are equally threats that would stunt our spiritual formation, even while they appeal to our tastes. It was about the 5th century when the way of Jesus had grown uh, broadly enough and popularly enough that options came on the table for the first time for Christ's followers. And about that time, St. Benedict authored the Benedictine Rule, which is still used today in abbeys and monasteries around the world. Distinct from other monastic writings, Benedict's Rule was the first to include a vow of stability which was a vow taken by all the monks covenanting to his rule to root their life in a particular place with a particular people for the whole of their life. So, so why a vow of stability? Because Benedict was observing all the ways that instability, meaning spiritual options and people jumping from community to community, was stunting spiritual maturity. In his rule, he writes of a group of monks called gyrovegs, which is a combination of two Latin words, gyro meaning circle, and vegs meaning wandering. Gyrovegs were those who were, figuratively speaking, wandering in circles. They were people deeply committed to Jesus who find themselves bouncing from church to church to church. Rooted here for a while until there was a leadership decision made that I disagreed with. And then I was at this place until I had that one awkward falling out with that one person in my small group. And then here until the music style changed and was just too far outside of the range of my preference. And now I'm here at Emmaus. The vow of stability, and this is so important, it's not a critique of options. It's a pathway to maturity. Right? Fruit requires deep roots. The fruit of the Spirit is not grown abstractly. It is rooted among a people and in a place. We grow in patience by bearing with those who we need patience to bear with. Uh, We grow in goodness and relationship to those who treat us badly by not immediately writing them off. We learn love by proximity to enemies, by people who are less than loving to us. Self-control grows in the soil where we're tempted toward outbursts of anger or fits of gossip. Spiritual maturity is relational. The way of Jesus essentially involves community because without community, there is no way to grow into the image of Jesus. We live in an increasingly therapeutic culture. I mean, the the very personal formation that for generations was worked out in community is these days being outsourced to individualized counseling and therapy. And don't miss me here. I'm all for that. I have greatly benefited from counseling myself. There is absolutely formation to be gained there, but it's formation in addition to community, not at the expense of community. The great psychological breakthrough of our time is that much of the deepest healing happens with a trained professional one-on-one. We've had breakthroughs in mental health and therapy that are for our good and for our redemption. But on the other side of that very coin, the great myth of our time is that we can be healed completely or healed most deeply in isolation. That community is not a necessity to our healing. The truth, though, affirmed by both spirituality and psychology, is that community is the context of our deepest and most complete healing. The fruit of the Spirit is grown in community, so stay and ask God to grow you up in the discomfort of staying. 
In my 35 years of life, I've lived in five U.S. states and three major American cities. I've been privileged to travel to five different continents and a whole bunch of different countries, but my paternal grandmother, Evelyn, has hardly ever traveled. She's never left the country. She has spent her entire life in a 20-mile radius uh, on uh, the, the last 70 years of it on the same tobacco farm in rural Kentucky that has been in my family for over 200 years. And as I think on her life and mine, I'm reminded that I've looked at a lot of places briefly. She's looked at one place deeply. In my generation and those coming after me, we tend to find depth through breadth, right? I've traveled a lot. I've seen a lot of people. I've interacted with a lot of different culture and places. So I'm cultured and that's respected. But what we fail to see is that there is equally an opportunity for depth and simplicity to commit yourself to a people and a place, to stability over the long haul. There lies a great opportunity for depth. And then finally, reconciliation. You know, of all of Jesus' teachings, uh, it's arguable that his teaching on forgiving your neighbor was his most countercultural. Traditional Judaism saw revenge so long as that revenge was carried out within the bounds of the law as a method of justice, right? Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus even referenced those very biblical teachings when raising the bar from revenge to forgiveness. And he went on to teach that there's this tie between our ability to receive the forgiveness of God and our ability to extend that forgiveness to one another, summing the whole thing up in this two-sided coin of loving God and loving neighbor. First John chapter 2 says, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Hates a brother or sister. Hate feels strong, doesn't it? I mean, I don't hate anyone, but equally the book of James counsels that the tongue is a restless evil. Your tongue, which includes both your speech and your thoughts, is the barometer of what's really in your heart. And if you could hear some of the conversations that I've had with people in my community in the haze of the early morning as they play out in the back of my mind, or some of the emails I've drafted in my imagination but never since, some of the assumptions that I've made about him or her based on a minor incident, even some of the things I've said aloud to my wife when my guard is down and my filters are off. See, it's my tongue that shows me what's really in my heart. And if we're going to live in Pentecost community, we've got to be willing to forgive and ask forgiveness. We have to reconcile in biblical language, which I would guess is why Jesus, who prefers to tell it slant through parables and proverbs, is remarkably direct when it comes to the practice of reconciliation. In Matthew 18, he said, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Now, where have you heard this verse quoted? Prayer meetings, right? Typically really poorly attended prayer meetings. <laughs> right, oh Lord, we, we know there's only a few of us here today, but thank you that you say wherever two or three are gathered, right? And that's not completely wrong. I mean, of course God is present there wherever his children are crying out to him. 
But when Jesus said this, he wasn't talking about poorly attended prayer meetings. He was promising to be present uh, in the uncomfortable, nervous moment of confession and reconciliation between two people within, uh, who have had a relational breach. The promise is found in the final word of the passage, which begins, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. So where is there an emotional wound in your life? Who has hurt you, whether they know it or not? And who have you hurt and then brushed it aside? Who has said something that's offended you and you quietly internalized it? Who broke your trust or disappointed you? Who mistreated you intentionally or not? Who have you judged in the quiet of your own thoughts? Who have you gossiped about seizing the opportunity at at making light of someone else at, at their expense when they weren't present to hear you? Who have you made assumptions about without really knowing them? Who have you given up on or written off because they've disappointed you one too many times? See, whatever or whoever comes to mind, however big or small, however recent or distant, that wounded relationship is the best opportunity you've got anywhere in your life for experiencing the manifest presence of God. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Awkwardly approaching a broken friendship with contrition in your heart is the equivalent to stepping into the throne room of God, says Jesus. To reconcile with someone else is to allow heaven to touch earth for just a moment in the relational space between the two of you. And these simple but wise words of Bob Goff, love difficult people, you are one of them. (laughs) So I want to end exactly where we began. Our third son, Amos, born with this severe heart condition, the most severe an infant has a chance of surviving. His life is hanging in the balance. He needs to have multiple open heart surgeries and then a month of rehab in the pediatric intensive care unit before he can ever go home. And that's if everything goes exactly according to plan. The doctors have responsibly prepped us that none of this is guaranteed. There's so much that they don't understand still about the condition that he has, and they they can't promise anything anything about what his life will look like from this point forward. So while they got him all prepped to be cut open, our five-year-old baby ready to have his rib cage pulled apart, his heart taken out, taken into different pieces, put back together, and then put back in place, and we hope it starts beating again like it's supposed to. While they got ready for all that, Kirsten and I sat in that hospital room weeping and praying psalms over him. And then they wheeled him off, and we had five hours to kill before we'd know anything. The longest five hours of my life. I could not sit still, so I stepped outside of the hospital to take a walk. And just when I did, right there on the sidewalk outside the hospital, I immediately ran into Brian Haddon, a friend from church. And I said, what are you doing here? And he said, oh, I knew today was the big day. So I'm walking around the hospital seven times like Jericho. And suddenly, I knew I wasn't alone. Because Brian was a visible representation of the God who promises to be with me. Besides still waters and quiet streams. And the God who promises to be with me in the valley of the shadow of death. And Amos made it. 
It was the best possible result. Today he's one year old and he is the smiliest, happiest little guy that you will ever meet. But the question I want to leave you with is this one. Which one of those is the power of the Holy Spirit that was poured out at Pentecost? Is it the healing of a little infant whose parents were helpless to help him? Or is it a friend that would drop everything in his own agenda to walk around a hospital seven times because he knew that someone else was in need of prayer? And I hope, I really hope, that from some deep place within you, there is an instinct that says, both. Why don't we stand? Let's respond together. Holy Spirit, would you come? Jesus, you say that whenever we open up your word, it's like scattering seed. And there's times when that seed finds good soil and it takes root in such a way that it produces 30, 60, and 100 times the fruit. And so I pray that the fruit of this Pentecost Sunday might come in the days and months after this Pentecost Sunday as something grows like the community left behind by the spectacle right here in Guilford.